Okay, in our last reading of James, I kind of flashed through verses 19 to 25 at the end of the study because they were linked to the main topic of the sermon, which was verse 18. And I hope that you'll be glad to know that you're not going to be getting away with that brief reading because today we're going to be having a much closer look at them. They contain a very fundamental challenge that we must confront literally minute by minute in our lives because it shows what our response is to what Christ has brought for us and it defines the earthly face of God as seen by those around us. Okay, this, is, this is what people see of God when they see us. Its importance is vast. Its execution is frightening and exhilarating at the same time. You know, it can't buy you your life, but it can cost it. So, let's start reading at James 1, verse 19. Know this, my dear brothers, everyone should be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath. For the, man, the wrath of a man does not accomplish the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filth and evil excess, and humbly welcome the word that has been planted in you, and is able to save your souls. Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deluding yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his own face in a mirror, he sees himself, then goes off and promptly forgets what he looked like. But the one who peers into the perfect law of freedom and perseveres and is not a hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, such a one shall be blessed in what he does. In chapter 1 so far, James has presented us with two tests of our belief. In verses 2 to 12, he asks how we respond to trials. In verses 13 to 18, he challenges how we respond to temptation. Now in verses 19 to 27, which we won't deal with those last two verses today, the new test is what are we going to be doing with the truths given to us by the Word of God? How do we deal with them internally and how does this internal work show up externally in our everyday lives? The first question is how we ought to feel. What is our internal position when we hear God's word? If we read Psalm 42 too, and it's very familiar to us because we all sing this song, As the deer longs for streams of water, so my soul longs for you, O God. We know that God and his word are the same thing. Therefore, that follows that our soul longs for his word in the same way that it longs for the relationship with God that we were designed for. To really get a grip on this verse, we need to understand what this longing thing is. I long for a, for a piece of cheese might be accurate, but it doesn't really convey the depth of what the psalmist was hoping to convey. Some translations use the word pant, rather than longing. And I really like that because for me, it really gives that sense of an animal whose need is great and desperate, whose very life may be at stake if they do not find that life-giving water. And this, of course, is exactly our position. Our eternal lives are at stake if we do not find the life-giving word of God. Although we are saved by that first drink, we remain with an ongoing thirst so that one drink is never enough. We must continue to drink God's word or suffer from a terrible thirst. I think that this is a sobering test. 
when we look inside our hearts, do we find this depth of despair? And if we don't, does it matter? John 8.31 tells us, Jesus then said to those Jews who believed in him, If you remain in my word, you truly will be my disciples. So the warning bells ought to ring loudly for us if we do not have that deep desire in our hearts for God's word because we may be deluded into believing that we are really Christians. This hunger for God's word is an internal process that happens out of sight from the rest of the world and there it can unfortunately stay for the rest of our lives. But we know that this is not God's desire. God requires that his salvation has a public face. And that face should be genuine. That genuine quality does not necessarily come from copying those at churches around us. Many years ago, I was given a cassette tape. Do all the young people here know what a cassette tape looks like? <laughs> no, no. I just want to say publicly, I have never owned an 8-track. Okay. But I was given a cassette tape that had a song on it that, that expressed in a very humorous way some of the pitfalls of behavior that Christians can fall into. And I was delighted when I did a web search because I was able to find the words. And it's called, I Want to Be a Clone, by a chap called Steve Taylor. Must be Daniel's smarter brother. Okay. And it goes like this. I've gone through so much other stuff that walking down the aisle was tough. But now I know it's not enough. I want to be a clone. I asked the Lord into my heart. They said, that's the way to start. But now you've got to play the part. I want to be a clone. Be a clone and kiss conviction. Good night. Cloneliness is next to godliness. Right. I'm grateful that they showed the way because I could never know the way to serve them on my own. I want to be a clone. They told me that I'd fall away unless I followed what they say. Who needs the Bible anyway? I want to be a clone. Their language, it was new to me, but Christianese got through to me. Now I can speak it fluently. I want to be a clone. Send in the clones. Ah, uh, I kind of wanted to tell my friends and people about it, you know. What? You're still a babe. You have to grow. Just give it 20 years or so, because if you want to be one of his, you've got to act like one of us. Be a clone. So now I see the whole design. My church is an assembly line. The parts are there. I'm feeling fine. I want to be a clone. I've learned enough to stay afloat, but not so much I rock the boat. I'm glad they shoved it down my throat. I want to be a clone. God does not want us to be clones. I'm also sure that the face God wants to demonstrate to those around us is not like those of the Pharisees we read of in Matthew 23. The scribes and the Pharisees have taken their seat on the chair of Moses. Therefore, do and observe all things, whatever they tell you, but do not follow their example. For they preach, but they do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens and lay them on people's shoulders, but they will not move a finger to move them. All their works are performed to be seen, they widen their phylacteries and lengthen their tassels. They love places of honor at banquets, seats of honor in synagogues, greetings and marketplaces, and the salutation, Rabbi. You know, we might think that acting like this went away with those Pharisees years and years ago, 
but we know that there are still many people today who profess to be Christians but behave in exactly the same way. They are not a good example to us. How do we know the difference between God's standards and popular behavior? Well, go to the book, of course. Here again is another reason why we have to read God's word, because it's the only absolute reference that we have. Does anybody here remember the example I gave of the hot and cold water test some sermons ago? So you know, the way that we're designed, we're absolutely unable to define a line and keep to it. We can only say that what we're doing now is different in some way to what we were doing just now. But God's word isn't like that. God's word is an absolute reference. We can go back to it and always rely on it. And it's only by referring to the Bible continuously so that we understand God's requirements we will be able to avoid clone-like and pharisaical behavior. The change God desires is not loud and in your face, but it's a quiet and continuous and convicting change. As I was reviewing my notes, I thought that maybe I should change that word convicting to convincing. But then I was struck by the link between them. You know, unless we are internally convicted, the change will not be externally convincing, will it? There are a lot of ways that our worldly nature may previously have showed, but now we are profoundly and permanently changed. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, So whoever is in Christ is a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. We might tell people that Jesus changes us, but they will not believe what they do not see. James knew this as well as any man, and this is why in verse 19 he counsels us to be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. What might be important about being quick to hear? Well, I know I speak for myself, but uh, I believe that most of us aren't naturally good listeners. We generally want to leap in as soon as we can and speak about ourselves and tell us, tell us you know, that's not a knife, this is a knife. In fact, we often talk right over other people and crush their opinions and their feelings. Because we don't take time to listen and process what we hear, we're also inclined to be very hasty with our response, which is often angry and hurtful. Unfortunately, this makes us no different to a non-Christian, and of course this is not where God wants us to be. The behavior he wants from us is very different. He wants us to be salt and light to the world around us for his glory. And we cannot do this if we are just the same as everybody else. Consider this. We are called to be witnesses to the world. Do you think that that witness is going to be most effective if we act like everybody else or if we take the time to listen? I mean, really listen to what somebody is saying. Carefully consider what we hear and then speak. I'm sure that it is the latter. Moreover, taking time to listen and think about what we have heard will undoubtedly stop us from those angry and hasty responses. James then points to what we should be keeping in mind as the reason for living in this way in verse 20. For the wrath of a man does not accomplish the righteousness of God. Whilst we should be obedient, we don't want to be grudgingly so. 
You know, it all comes down to a question of gratitude, really. Surely we want to be righteous for our Father's sake. After all, there is that very small matter of His giving us the gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ, His Son. That monumental gift of life was bought at a terrible price. Jesus, as one of the Holy Trinity, shared fully in the power and glory and majesty of God. Yet, He reduced Himself to the status of a man and accepted the undeserved punishment for every wrong done by every man for all time. He died a terrible death on the cross, causing our sin to die with Him. However, like no man, fully like God, He rose from death, opening the way for us to have reconciliation with God the Father. After all that, surely, the very least we can do is try to behave in the way that He would like us to behave. But this is only a beginning, because although it is a witness of God at work in us, it is mostly a passive kind of witness. God wants us to actively work out our salvation. In verse 21, we are told, Therefore put away all filth and evil excess, and humbly welcome the word that has been planted in you and is able to save your souls. James uses a Greek word, apothemai, I'm stumbling over that deliberately because I can't pronounce it properly. And that's translated as put away. And it's a word that's most commonly used to describe taking off a set of clothes. Okay, so we take our clothes off. So what are we going to do with those clothes? They're lying on the floor, or if our mother has disciplined ourselves properly, they might be on a chair. Not likely. Are we going to pick those clothes up and wear them again? Or are we going to discard them? as being filthy and unfit for further use. I really struggle to, to understand what God was trying to say here. But then it seemed to me interesting that the verse doesn't suggest that we should be looking for new clothes to cover up and hide behind. It seems that maybe rather naked and vulnerable as it were, we should be looking for what we really need somewhere else. Isn't this exactly the truth? Because... We all wear a suit of emotional clothes that we think hides and protects us from the world. If we are truthful, we know that our attempt to conceal our real natures is less than successful, and that as hard as we try without Christ, we just don't have an answer. But if we are humble and honest and turn to God, He will plant in us His Word to save our souls. And not just that, He will give us the identity of one of His children, the knowledge that He will faithfully and consistently support us and work in our lives to make us better people and the firm assurance of eternal life within, with Him in heaven. This is real. This is truth. For this we do not need a set of clothes to hide behind. Without God we have only a cheap and stained suit of clothes. With Him we have hope and meaning and freedom. This is exponentially better than anything the world has to offer. Now, one of the things I try to do is not to use long words, but sometimes the words just have to be used. Who knows what exponentially means? Okay, Jeremy, tell me about exponentially. <laughs> Shouldn't have put your hand up, should you? <laughs>
Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, if you think about some graphs you've seen, maybe sometimes a line on the graph will just go straight up like this, okay? But an exponential graph goes like this. The more it goes up, the faster it goes up, okay? And that's exactly what we're speaking about here. It is that much better than anything that the world can offer us. It's planted and it's rooted in us and it's inseparable. If we nurture it, it will grow and bear fruit. So how do we produce that fruit? Well, verse 22 gives us the answer. Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deluding yourselves. It's a sad reflection of human nature that our receiving of God's word has become separated from the need for obedience to its truths. In fact, they can't be separated. It's just like, it's just like a coin, okay? You'll never ever find a coin with only one side. This coin has salvation on one side and obedience on the other. Salvation, obedience. Salvation, obedience. It's always the same. But for some reason, we often, won't, often only want to look at the value that's on one side, the salvation bit. We want to hide the other bit, the obedience bit away and never use it. You know, We just stick it in our pocket. The thing is that a coin that isn't used, it just becomes a piece of metal. It's useless. To, re to realize its worth, it's got to come out of its hiding place and it's got to move from hand to hand. When we keep coins in our pockets, the only thing we're going to find after a while is a hole there and the money gone. The problem is that we want to delude ourselves, to have our cake and eat it. We want to have the assurance of salvation, but still enjoy the physical attractions of the flesh, so that too often we push the voice of our conscience right to the back of our hearts and continue to sin. And by doing this, we become destroyers. Now this was another bit of the, this passage that I struggled with because the Greek word that's rendered doers, when talking about doers, is poetes. And its meanings include a maker, a producer, an author, a doer, a performer, one who obeys or fulfills the law, and a poet. And you can understand that we get our modern word poet from this word. So how does this thing, this poet thing, stack up with being a doer? really puzzled me. Then I realized that in all these definitions there is a common theme of purposeful creation. And it shouldn't really be a surprise to us that this should be so because God is the creator. He made us to be in his image and so he wants us to be creators as well, as well not destroyers. Now, I want to ask you at this point, all please, to pay attention to me. Because this call to be poets, to be doers, is the minute-by-minute minute challenge I spoke about in the beginning of my sermon. For Christians, of everything that James has said to us this far, and will say later on, this is the most important. When you leave here today, please do not forget this. Take that ruler of obedience, of doing with you, and apply it to everything that you do. In this situation, am I obedient to God? Am I doing what He wants me to do? If we do this, this is where we're going to take our spiritual coin out of our pocket and spend it. 
And we're going to spend it to create, which is what God intended. At this point, I want to mention that we should not be confused by the word doer. Because our understanding of that word seems to suggest an emphasis on physical action. So it might seem like our main call is to do something practical like feed the poor. Well, of course, we are called to feed the poor. But the scope of this doing that James is speaking of really encompasses everything that we think, say, or physically do. One of the questions we may ask is, when are we expected to be doers? Well, the answer is all the time, actually. The tense of the Greek that's used for be tells that we are expected to continuously do this work. So specifically, our obedience ought to start at the very instant of our salvation and finish only at the instant of our death. There should be no gaps and no excuses. It is vital that we take James's warning on delusion seriously because it may literally be the difference between eternal life and eternal death for us. His warning is very specific and personal. He speaks of deluding yourselves. He doesn't speak of deluding other people. Like the Pharisees, our outward behavior may delude others as to our real position with God. And whilst this is at least a bad example and might mislead others into copying us, we ought to be looking much closer to home for its real consequences. We ought to be concerned with our own spiritual position, not what others think of us. One of the commentaries I've been using as a reference for this series has James's warning so well put that I want to read it out to you exactly as it was in the book. Those who fail to do the word, who are hearers only, are guilty of a dangerous and potentially fatal self-delusion. If the gospel by nature contains both saving power and summons to obedience, those who relate only to one have not truly embraced the gospel. That is why James can say that people who only hear the word are deceiving themselves. They think that they have a relationship with God because they reg regularly attend church, go to Bible studies, or read the Bible. But if their listening is not accompanied by obedience, their true situation before God is far different. Far different. Obedience, says Calvin, is the mother of true knowledge of God. Okay. Now it's TV confession time. Does anyone here ever watch that dreadful thing, Wife Swap? Oh, gee, you're obviously much better than I am. <laughs> I have to confess that from time to time I do see bits of it. Now, it sounds like I'm backpedaling here, but it's true. I only see bits. It's really fascinating because, understandably, the producers of the show, they want to look for maximum friction. For those of us who are better than me and who have never watched Wife Swap, this is a reality show that involves taking the wife from one family and sending her to live with another family for about a week to see how she copes with their life and how they cope with her. So, an ideal show for the producers would be something like finding the wife of a Ku Klux Klanner and then putting her with a civil rights activist. Fantastic. I don't think it's great television. Anyway, in an episode recently, both the families happened to be Christians. Well, maybe not so much in the one instance, because whilst one family was very scripturally centered, the other was actually very liberal. 
The husband proudly stated that he had devoted his whole life to the study of the scriptures and that he spoke, read and wrote eight languages. And I'm not talking about French, and German and Italian here. I'm talking about classical, biblical languages. He was a very scholarly and knowledgeable man. So what did he do with all of this knowledge? Was he a great scholar, writing book after book to build up the body of Christ? Was he a knowledgeable and gripping preacher? Well, actually, no. He was a stay-at-home dad. In fact, he called himself openly a wife. So all of this stuff was for his own edification, for his own pride and puffing up. And for me, this was a real-life example of delusion in action, and it's really easy to, to fall into that place. We can be deluded too. The word that uh, James uses for hearers describes those who sit passively in an audience and listen only to a singer or speaker. It would describe you guys. You're sitting there and you're listening to me. And this is not what we want to be. To think that we belong to God when our lack of doing proves that we are not. Because this would put us in the tragic position of those Jesus speaks of in Matthew 7, 21 to 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not drive out demons in your name? Did we not do mighty deeds in your name? Then I will declare to them solemnly, I never knew you. Depart from me, you evildoers. That is a very frightening promise from Jesus. I don't want to be in that place. How will I know if I am going to that place? How will I know if I'm hearing and not doing? James virtually says that it is as plain as the nose on your face. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his own face in the mirror. He sees himself, then goes off and promptly forgets what he looked like. It's important to understand the way that James is expecting us to be looking because we've got to think in terms of the times. Okay, remember that the silvered mirrored glass that we enjoy now, it's a comparatively modern adventure, invention. When I say modern, it was invented in the 14th century, but it certainly wasn't around in James' time. Mirrors in those days were made out of very highly polished brass or bronze, or maybe if you happen to be very wealthy, it might, might be made out of silver gold but you know no matter how well you polish it you're never ever going to get as good an image as we see today and what this means is that one glance would never be enough you'd have to get the thing and really look into it carefully and maybe turn it a bit to get the best the best kind of uh, image and this is this is what James is saying to us you know you have to look carefully at yourself in the mirror and if you do so, it's going to be impossible to forget what you have seen there. If we are honest, what we will have seen there is an unworthy sinner saved by the blood of Jesus. How can we go away and forget that? And as well as we know that we are sinners, we know that we have a hunger to hear God's word through the study of the Bible. And we also have an obligation to obey its commands. Since these are fundamental, Satan, the deceiver, will always try to attack us in these areas. 
And I know from my own experience and from the testimony of others that many other Christians are particularly lacking in the area of Bible study. We simply cannot allow ourselves to be weakened in this way. And now for today's physics lesson. We had a brief mathematics lesson. Now we're going to speak about physics. In my last sermon, I spoke about Sir Isaac Newton and his first law of motion. Every object in motion will stay in motion or at rest until acted upon by an external force. And this time we're going to look at his second law, which states that force equals mass times acceleration. There you go. Okay, a simple illustration. If I want to drive a nail into this piece of wood, I could use this tiny hammer to do so. But it would be very difficult because I'd have to move it very fast to produce enough force to cause the nail to penetrate the wood. In fact, the thing that it's most likely to penetrate is my finger. If I were to use this hammer, however, I wouldn't have to try that hard and my finger would probably be safe. The implication is that I must either move really fast or I must have significant mass. Okay? But these things aren't exclusive. You have to have speed and you have to have mass or there will be no force applied. If I put the hammer over there and I just look at the nail, nothing is going to happen. Okay? The hammer is useless. So I've got to have both things in balance. So let's play with this equation a little bit. By myself, I have a mass of one sinner, but no movement, and therefore I have no force. I'm useless. But God is the great multiplier. As we read in Leviticus 26, Do not make false gods for yourselves. You shall not erect an idol or a sacred pillar for yourselves, nor shall you set up a stone figure for worship in your land. For I, the Lord, am your God. Keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary. I am the Lord. If you live in accordance with my precepts and are careful to observe my commandments, I will give you rain in due season, so that the land will bear its crops and the trees their fruit. Your threshing will last till vintage time, and your vintage till the time for sowing, and you will have food to eat in abundance, so that you may dwell securely in your land. I will establish peace in the land, that you may lay down to rest without anxiety. I will rid the country of ravenous beasts and keep the sword of war from sweeping across the land. You will rout your enemies and lay them low with your sword. Five of you shall put a hundred of your foes to flight, and a hundred of you will chase ten thousand of them, till they are cut down by your sword. So as God multiplies my efforts through salvation, I can have great force for Him. But I can do even better by giving Him a bit more mass to work with. And how do I do that? By reading God's Word. By memorizing and implanting it in my mind and heart, I can bring nothing to this work except my willingness to do it. It is God's power and His Word at work in me that produces any effective force. Therefore, we must not allow Satan to divert us from the study of the Bible because it is crucial to our work, both as Christians and as food for us in the process of sanctification. Finally, verse 25. But the one who peers into the perfect law of freedom and perseveres and is not a hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, such a one shall be blessed in what he does. This is a contrast here between the hearer who forgets and the doer that acts. One has a quick look in the mirror 
and then goes away, forgetting what they've seen. It means as much to them as just stopping, quickly combing their hair and going away. The other one, however, looks carefully. The Greek that is used for peers into has the sense of somebody bending over, you know, getting right over and looking at something really, really carefully. These are people who persevere in doing that. They persevere in looking carefully and they act on what they see, have seen. And they know what should be studied. You know, if I magnify an ant, it might be really interesting to look at, but it's of no consequence. We should be focused on the perfect law of freedom, which is contained in God's Word, the Bible. So, it is imperative that we are doers, not hearers. Our reward here on earth will be God's blessing, however that may be manifest. But of far greater importance will be the promise of looking forward to hearing him say, Well done, my good and faithful servant. I've been told that the average person has forgotten fully 95% of what they have heard in a sermon within three days. So this is the 5% that I hope you will remain with. Firstly, our interpersonal behavior should be different. Listen first, consider, and then speak. Secondly, hearing and doing are irrevocably tied together as being part of a child of God. There are no optional choices. This being the case, we must consider whether we are obedient in both or whether perhaps we must change in order to obey. Finally, we must study the Bible. We must study the Bible. We must study the Bible. Let us pray. Father, I, I know I speak for myself when I, I pray for a, a real conviction in my heart to study your word. And Lord, not just to keep that word in my heart, but to, to be real, to live with it every day as my clothes, not the clothes of the person that I am that I'd like people to see. Lord, I pray that because of that, your power would work through me to bring about change in others' lives. And I pray, Lord, that this would be something that would be with me forever until the time that I come home to be with you. In Jesus' name, amen.